0: It's funny how I remember, like, I, you know, I remember the store. There's a it's picture the where we lived. It was like a, well, it was an apartment, so to speak. And anyway, um, it was a big building, and they turned that into a motel after we left.
1: And I'm Karen Grigsby-Bates, and this is a Code Switch podcast extra. During World War II, Japanese-Americans on the West Coast, the coast closest to Japan, were rounded up and sent away to what the American government called internment camps. Some 120,000 Japanese-Americans were detained for four years. It was a shameful episode in American history, and the people who lived it are dying out. What a lot of people don't know is that some Japanese-Americans avoided these camps entirely. One of the voices you heard at the top of this podcast extra was Diana Sushida, whose project, Te Saku, documents the experiences of some of those Japanese Americans. Welcome, Diana. Thank you. Tell us a little bit more about this tape we just heard. Where were you? Who were you talking to? And do you remember
2: any of the pictures this gentleman showed you? I do. So I was speaking with Howard Yamamoto, who is now 80 years old and living in the East Bay in California, and he was four when his family left California to go to Utah to a place called Keatley. And in Keatley, there was a colony of Japanese-Americans who avoided the camps by getting out within the three weeks which they were allowed to leave before there was a freeze order on the West Coast. So in these photos that Howard showed me was where they lived for about three years, 1942 to 45. They lived in a valley, uh, they were surrounded by low mountains and grassy hills, and it was just d- dotted with farmhouses. The specific place they lived in was this two-story brick building, and it's just very sparse. There, you can just tell there wasn't a lot to look
1: at. Here's a little bit of tape
2: of Howard himself describing to you what this looked
1: like to the four-year-old him.
0: We were all assigned to these, these rooms, really. He lived in there.
2: So where the family stayed was in this motel, this makeshift?
0: Not all of uh, Or if there was a big family in mm-hmm. one of some of these homes, we were uh, spread out, okay. I mean, in, in the valley. Myself, we were in this motel. Okay. And right next to the motel is a little house, a little shed. And I remember later on, after a year, we moved into that little shed. I wouldn't mm-hmm. even call it a house. I don't think it's bigger than that, the living room. <laughs> But initially, whatever homes were there was abandoned at that time. And what it was used for early was to house miners. I think it was a silver mine there.
2: Howard got there just in time before they filled the valley with water to make a reservoir, which is now the Jordanelle Dam Dam. Wow. So Howard Yamamoto was part of a
1: community of Japanese Americans who avoided internment by moving away from California into places like Utah, where many worked in agriculture. And we should note here that the numbers of people who avoided internment were very slim, like maybe out of the whole total 120,000, 5,000 people managed to escape being sent to these camps. Diana, how did all this get
2: started? Did people receive notice that they'd have to be gone by a certain date? Well, essentially, after Executive Order 9066 was signed, that set into motion the forced removal of the Japanese-Americans from the West Coast. They wanted all the Japanese out because they thought, well, if anyone is going to attack us on our own soil, it's going to be the Japanese here. Japanese-Americans they were worried about. Exactly. So February 19th is when executive order was signed, and they had until March 27th to leave these military zones or to report to assembly centers and um, to get on these buses to be moved. So Howard's family happened to be part of this kind of exodus from California. It was about 130 people that moved to Keatley in Utah. So... How did they get from California
1: to Utah? I mean, they didn't go on buses, did they?
2: They didn't. They had kind of a caravan. They took their own cars, some trucks with furniture, but they really could take only what they could carry. So they left before that freeze order at the end of March went into effect and were able to get out in time. I'm imagining this must have taken several days to get from, in
1: their case, California to Keatley, Utah. Did they, and what was the reception? Do you have any idea about that?
2: It did take a, a long time. That's one of the things Howard said was kind of grueling about it. And actually, for his family or his mother specifically, she did not want to stay in any motels along the way. There was so Much anti-Japanese sentiment and so much unknown as they were traveling through these small towns, she was scared. And so they actually just packed as much food as they could to carry them over, and then they slept in the car on the way to Utah. I would imagine also they'd be pretty conspicuous as a caravan of Japanese
1: Americans going into some of the whitest parts of the country.
2: That's right. Well, and they were lucky because the town of Keatley and Heber City was aware that the Japanese were coming in. And I think that helped sort of get the community warmed to the idea of uh, seeing more, you know, Japanese faces in their town. Somebody had to set up the whole Keatley
1: arrangement. Who was Fred Wada, and where did he figure into this, and why Utah?
2: So Fred Wada was a very successful produce grower and businessman living in Oakland at the time. And according to Howard, he went to just different cities, uh, bordering cities in California, basically was denied every place he went except when he met George Fisher, the mayor of of the town, who was the landowner in Keatley. And Fisher wanted to have his land turned into fertile farmland. So he put his own reputation on the line because there initially was a lot of pushback to him and to Fred Wada um, doing this. Did this arrangement? Was this mutually advantageous? I mean,
1: did Mr. Wada and the rest of the people who came with him, were they able to make a living off of doing this farming?
2: They did, if if just for to sustain themselves by food. Mr. Wada was advised to set this up as a non-profit co-op so that basically nobody could really deny that this was going to be advantageous for the community and for uh, the Japanese Americans. So they, they sold the produce in the town. A couple of the crops they grew were potatoes, strawberries, carrots and peas and cabbage. And this was a very patriotic act. They had a sign on top of a shed in the field and it read food for freedom. And so Mr. Wada wanted this group of people to be seen as super patriots working for America and for the war effort. You
1: also talked with Grace Izuhara, who lived in another farming community out in Clearfield, Utah.
3: We were not welcome in Utah either.
1: Let's listen to her reminiscence.
3: When the hunting season started, there were signs uh, in stores where people could get a hunting license And there was a sign that said, you know, hunting licenses for Japs, too. Mm. And one of the workers on my dad's farm, who was also a good friend, uh, I remember that uh, a bullet hit his boot while he was in the field.
2: How scary. Do you remember your parents, did they ever speak about Feeling afraid or even, you know, years later?
1: No, I don't remember their saying anything. So this was not the same experience for Grace that it was for Mr. Wada and his people. The Clearfield was a different kind of community. Did she say how it was for her living in her part of Utah?
2: From what she could remember, it was just much harder because... I believe they were brought in by a sugar beet company because that was how they were able to avoid camp. They were seen as working for uh, the war effort. So her parents did that, and it sounded like they were not as warmly welcomed. She remembers being bullied in school, and uh, she was only six at the time, six or seven, and so it seemed to really stay with her, and it was a hardship, but... They were lucky because they were able to avoid camp completely.
1: You spoke with Nancy Yamamoto, who is no relation to Howard, but they do have the same last name. Nancy Yamamoto has an example of how that felt early on. Let's hear that tape.
4: I was home for a girls' meeting back home, and I was intending to take the train back to San Francisco Monday morning. Well, they wouldn't allow me to get on the train. They wouldn't sell me a ticket. I think I could still picture him. And I said, "Why not?" And he says, "Your country started a war against us." And I said, "That's not my country." Mm-hmm. And I said, "I'm an American boy, and Japanese American." And he said, "Doesn't make any difference. Can't sell you a ticket. If you want a ticket, go to the a lawyer and." Uh, have them write up a birth certificate for
2: you. You know, we had to have proof. I think that Nancy's case was the first I had heard of someone asking for a document. And actually, I don't think she got on the train at all, even after she brought her birth certificate. But I think it was more of these verbal exchanges that white people had of their Japanese neighbors or Business owners, they taunted them. There was just a very common saying, a Jap is a Jap. And that permeated the sentiment at the time. And I think a lot of people just were so fearful of being invaded and not trusting their fellow Americans.
1: Howard talked with you about that, and specifically about Fred Wada and how he dealt with the discrimination all around him, even as he was organizing and helping to administer this community that he'd helped to found in Keatley. Let's listen to that tape.
0: He was a super patriot. Wada wanted to be seen as super patriot.
2: For the U.S.?
0: U.S. So in that sense, I think the Japanese, there anyway, people kind of grew into it, you know.
2: Into the feeling patriotic. Yeah, that,
0: oh, here they are, you know, working for America. You
2: know. Oh, I and so see the outside.
0: The negativism slowly dissipated.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Are there a bunch of things that they ran into, you know, anti Japanese? I'm sure. But being typical Japanese, you don't talk about it. My father, I remember him taking a job, uh, I don't know, with the railroad, and uh, yeah, he was turned away a lot. He mentioned a couple of times a lot of discriminatory, you know, remarks made against him, but he, he was a typical Japanese. he ha, 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 he'd laugh about it, you know.
1: Tell me why Japanese-Americans who lived through World War II, either in the internment camps or elsewhere, didn't talk a whole lot about their
2: experiences. There's a common phrase in Japanese, chikata ganai," which means, it can't be helped. That feeling of you must press on, you have to just keep your head up and keep moving because what can you do about the situation? That's really what pulled a lot of the older Japanese through this. And I think there was a lot of shame and embarrassment that their Americanism and their citizenship wasn't enough to prove that they were not colluding with the Japanese empire. So that silence is really pervasive, but this younger generation and uh, generation of uh, Howard and my father who was in camp, they're more willing to speak about it because so many years have passed and we need to prevent this from ever happening again. You mentioned that your father
1: also lived
2: in one of these camps for a while. Is that why you pursued this project? It is. My father was six at the time when they went into camp. And also, I started this because I didn't know my grandfather. He passed when I was about eight. He was a very fierce resistor inside one of the camps, Tule Lake. And so there's this deep sense of regret for not knowing his story. And I thought, this is how I can sort of rectify that. A lot of the people you're talking to now were very young
1: when they were taken away, including your dad, and they have some pretty vivid memories. Your dad talks about being in school with a monstrously strict teacher who refused to allow him to do, like, the most basic human thing. Let's hear that
3: tape. So I raised my hand. I had to go pee-pee in the class. You know, sensei, benje ikitai. And he Come (laughs) on, Shiro. You told me to, (laughs) you know, you told me to hold it, (laughs) and you know I couldn't, you know, talk back, and I couldn't hold it. You know the other reason there wasn't a bathroom; we had to walk to the center of the block, so it would take you know ten minutes for a kid to go, you know, back and forth. Mm -hmm. So that's the reason I figured the teacher said, you know, hold it. So anyway, I peed in my pants, but nobody noticed. And doing research, I dashed home and changed.
2: And how embarrassing! Yeah. Is that?
3: But they were punishment if you didn't memorize. Really? Yeah. And I remember one time out in the snow, I had to hold my book up straight like this and read the two pages over and over until the you know sense that it came out. because I mispronounced some phrase in there. So that was my punishment. He used to go outside and read it.
2: In the snow?
3: Yeah, so he stood out there, and I had to read out loud. And then he would peek out, and he would say, Kiko Enzo, you know, he would say, I can't hear you.
1: <laughs> He's laughing now, but it must have been terrifying then. Spending time with your father to get his story, to hear these little nuggets that you hadn't heard before, how did that make you feel?
2: I guess I was really gripped by the idea that such a racially driven injustice affected sort of the course of our family and his life. I just remained fascinated by what happened and how people really went through their lives feeling first ashamed to be Japanese and having to really prove their American identity and then trying to come to terms with holding on to the culture or the language and, and different traditions, because I think the experience of camps really tried to uh, take that cultural pride out of a lot of people, but Uh, people really had to hold on to it and so it's it's always just interesting to hear what my father comes up with and the more I ask him things the more he starts to remember so it's like these things were really locked away for a long time and the questions really uh, pull them out and I learn something new each time. Thank you Diana for bringing this piece of hidden history to Code Switch. Thank you so much for having me. And that's it for
1: this podcast, Extra. Today's episode was produced by Walter Ray Watson and Maria Paz Gutierrez. A shout-out to the Code Switch team, co-hosts Shireen marisol Meraji and Jean Demby, and Adrian Ferrito, Kat Chow, Leah Donella, and Sammy Yenigan Our editor is Juleka Lantigua-Williams. Original music is by Ram Team Arab Louis. Follow us on Twitter. We're at NPR Code Switch. We want to hear from you. Our email is codeswitch, that's one word, at npr.org. Subscribe to this podcast wherever fine podcasts can be found or streamed. Thanks for listening. I'm Karen Grigsby-Bates. Be well.